HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Brooklyn Ball Factory, a Japanese eatery and coffee shop at 95 Montrose Avenue in East Williamsburg. Learn more at brooklynballfactory.com. HRN is offering complimentary business memberships to 50 Black, Indigenous, People of Color-owned food businesses this summer. The deadline to apply is July 31st. Each business membership, a $500 value, is an advertising opportunity that will allow businesses disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 to connect with HRN's listening community and promote their work. To apply and review the terms and conditions, go to heritageradionetwork.org B-I-Z. Hey, hey, you're listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network, and I'm your host, Kathy Airway. So I'm recording still from my closet here in Brooklyn as we sit out the pandemic, but I'm so excited about today's guest on the show, who's joining us virtually, of course. Um, so the fast food industry has long been villainized by health experts and popular media as a main culprit for the high rates of obesity, heart disease, and type 2 diabetes in America, and we know that Black Americans are disproportionately affected. So, you know, these health disparities have inspired a food justice movement, as well as educational initiatives, such as former First Lady Michelle Obama's Let's Move campaign. And, you know, it's warranted that we explore how well those initiatives have worked out since it's been about 20 20 years almost since uh, Fast Food Nation by Eric Schlosser was a bestseller and um, Super Size Me came out a few years later and was a documentary that, you know, made it to the, uh, it was dominated for an Academy Award. So what has happened? What has happened is that these problems have largely persisted despite many well-intentioned educational movements and many books that were, and, and media that were very successful. So perhaps let's take a closer look at the complicated relationship that the fast food industry has had with black communities in particular to understand its roots and to see how it has to do with the civil rights movement. Um, my guest today is the author of Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America. And she's a professor at Georgetown University where she is a scholar on history and African-American studies. I'm so pleased to welcome to the show, Dr. Marsha Chatlin. Hi. Hi, thank you, Kathy. I'm so excited to talk to you. 
Oh, I'm so thrilled that you could join. And uh, I know it's a crazy time of in everyone's life. So I'm so I'm glad that you're you're with us today. How are you doing? I am good. You know, I was on my book tour when everything mm-hmm. started to shut down. I was actually on the train to New York for this fabulous event at NYU oh. with um, Marion Nessel, who blurbed the book, and uh, Mireya Losa, who does a lot of research on um, agriculture and workers. And I was so excited. And as I'm on the train, I'm hearing, okay, we're not allowed to have gatherings of more than 50 people. Um, You might be able to do a smaller event. And then everything was canceled. And so I got Um, to New York and I turned around and and went back home. And so I've been virtually talking about my book. And it's been interesting. Um, There's a lot of attention when the book first came out. Mm -hmm. And then things got a little quiet. And in light of recent events around protests after the killing of George Floyd and conversations about um, Black communities and Black business and investment, um, I think people are looking at my book from a different lens. So it's been really exciting to be part of that conversation. That is fascinating. Um, Yeah, so your book came out in January of this year. Um, You know, not the best time. (laughs) I'm glad you're doing okay, it sounds. Um, but you're also, your first book was called Southside Girls, um, and it told the story of the great migration through the lens of black girls. So sort of like retelling of history. I'm curious if you were sort of inspired to write this book franchise in part because this is the story that we weren't seeing, um, in other works about the fast food industry. So the reason I wrote this book is because I was so curious about the ways that there was a subculture within fast food, and that is African-American franchise owners and the ways that they underwrote a lot of cultural activities and sponsored a lot of events that were geared towards African-Americans. And so while my first book was looking at the urbanization of African-American populations out of the South into the North, this book looks at the ways that African-Americans as a viable consumer market, as um, a a class of people who are um, slowly being brought into American consumerism after the civil rights movement, how does that intersect with fast food, which is often kind of pointed to as one of the plagues within these communities. And, you know, so much of the ways that we talk about fast food and racial health disparities is about blaming people for the things they eat. But I really wanted to explore how these choices were made available in the first place. Yeah, right. I mean, your your book, I, as you're mentioning in the beginning, um, it's be- becoming um, or it's gaining a little bit more attention now in in light of the Black Lights Black Lives Matter movements uh, or the waves of it that we're seeing right now. But it's an interesting. Um, it it seems like your research is telling a precautionary tale of how capitalism is feeding off of civil rights movements. And the, the uncomfortable success story of, of McDonald's and fast food in the wake of the 60s uh, civil rights movements, do you think that it has uh, gained a little bit more attention with, um, with folks that are warning against um, all the, I don't know, uh, <laughs> movements that are going on right now today? Yeah. So the way that um, fast food kind of appears in Black communities in a significant way 
in the late 1960s was tied to the uprisings after Martin Luther King's assassination. And if you look at the history of any type of civil unrest around racial injustice in the United States, there's these big explosions, there's police confrontation, there's violence. And then there are these periods of time where people take a step back and reflect. And you'll have these commissions say, you know, what's plaguing urban America? And it's usually the same things, Um, you know, joblessness, um, housing discrimination, um, poor educational access, and people will always include main street stores that either don't cater to African-Americans or treat them very poorly. And Mm -hmm. this fuels the idea that if you cultivate more black businesses and predominantly black neighborhoods, things will become better. And I challenge that premise because this is the way that the fast food industry was Mm -hmm. able to get access to inner city communities, not only because people were actually asking for more goods and services, but because the federal government underwrote a lot of this process through small business administration loans. And it's this idea that if you simply diversify a system, does it make it a better system? And I really want people to Hmm. think about that, right? Because- I think that you can argue, yes, you bring more capital into some neighborhoods, you bring some jobs, but the quality of those jobs, the terms in which that money is made, I think are also important questions to ask. And so I think right now, as we kind of think about this moment as another turning point in the question Mm -hmm. of racial justice, um, where does business fit into all of this? Yep. And, you know, you open the book in your introduction by taking us back to six years ago in Ferguson. And uh, and in particular, there was a McDonald's on Florissant Avenue that was seen as, in retrospect, as this, like, sort of anchor for many different communities from protesters seeking milk to to, you know, help out with the sting of tear gas to journalists camping out. And, um, and and do you see any of like, I don't know, any parallels today with with fast food? I'm curious. Well, there's a way that in these moments of civil unrest, um, the fast food restaurants tend to have um, the capital and the capacity to stay open. And that's what mm-hmm. happened largely in Ferguson. The McDonald's on Florissant Avenue was able to stay open during most of the unrest. And it is a type of business that usually has the size and the kind of um, recognition where people say, okay, we can converge at the McDonald's. And there's a version of it that's happening um, right now with a lot of the protests that are happening in big cities where, you know, people are telling me stories about how, you know, during the protests, the McDonald's workers will let them use the bathroom, that the workers are saying to them, like, we're with you, even if we can't be out in the streets, like we support you, Um, you know, you can come and we'll give you something to eat. And so I think that there's a way that, you know, in these moments where there's like so much distress, the familiarity of a fast food outlet is sometimes what draws people there. But as we see um, with what happened in Atlanta at the Wendy's restaurant where there was a shooting and um, later arson, um, Mm -hmm. you know, the fast food space becomes, can also become a target of Mm -hmm. animus because they represent a kind of extraction of capital from communities that people resent. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I I loved how this book, it told me, you know, not only about fast food, but uh, it explored how franchises work just themselves and how successful this model is. Um, 
just in itself. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how how franchising came to be? Um, as you write, actually, you write franchising was the channel for converting a couple of ice cream par- parlors or a few hot dog outfits into multi-billion dollar businesses with the power to influence supply chains, workers, wages, and global tastes. Um, that all comes from franchising. How did this happen? So franchising is a model that has been used in different industries. And like you could say that um, Singer sewing machines were an early franchise because you have a parent company that sends out representatives into the field to sell the product on their behalf. Coca-Cola is a kind of franchising model in which they have the recipe, they have the rules that you have to follow, Mm. and then the bottlers are responsible for acquiring enough glass and water and syrup proportions in order to sell it. Um, Fast food franchising is interesting because it allows people to enter a business and you don't need formal education. You don't have to have been at culinary school or have a master's degree in business or even have any business experience. Like if you can pay the fees and go through the training program, you can become a business owner. And there's something that on its surface seems deeply egalitarian and American about it. Like anyone can do it. But the reality of some of the legacy brands like Burger King and McDonald's and Taco Bell is that you have to have a lot of capital in Mm -hmm. order to qualify for the franchise. And then the reality of franchising is you assume a lot of the liabilities of running the business and you have to comply with the rules set out by the franchisor. So for instance, you can't go into a local McDonald's and get, you know, like broccoli cheddar soup unless someone (laughs) at corporate has determined your region is a broccoli cheddar soup region. Like you're not allowed to do that. And Mm -hmm. you can't go to your friend and say, hey, can you make me hamburger buns at a different price? And then they become your supplier. Like those things are not allowed. So there's no, so there's this weird sense of ownership with an asterisk. And there's also this kind of um, autonomy that doesn't exist, but it's incredibly alluring because some of the thinking that you have to do in planning a restaurant, you don't have to do, but it is still incredibly difficult incredibly taxing, and it can be very risky work. Hmm. Yep. And uh, it sounds like, you know, when uh, McDonald's and other fast food companies were sort of eyeing um, African-American communities, it was a time when, you know, you write that, you know, before it became a fixture of American life, the fast food industry and, and, you know, the fast food itself was sort of an object of curiosity and fascination and hope for many black communities. And it represented something, you know, something aspirational. So, so was it necessarily difficult for fast food um, businesses to, to reach the black community in the way that it, it did so successfully or, or did they create some of that, um, those, those sort of aspirational. I mean, I'm sure they created (laughs) all that branding, but how did that exactly happen? Well, if you think about the moment when the first African-American is entered into the franchise system at McDonald's, it's 1968. It's shortly after King's assassination. There is a sense that the next stage in the civil rights struggle would be business development and economic opportunities. And I often remind people that 
At 68, African-Americans are only enjoying four years of federal protection in terms of access to public accommodation. So there's only right, four so from years. the Civil Rights Act of 1964, is that exactly, right? Exactly, yeah. right? Okay. The Civil Rights of 19, Act of 1964, while it didn't eliminate um, discrimination entirely, of course, mm-hmm. but what it does, it opens up the possibility that like, you could go into a place and you don't have to be subjected to a colored-only window. And a waitress mm-hmm or a manager can't refuse you service. And so the idea that a national brand like McDonald's is moving into a community um, that has been ignored by some of these businesses, or if they are in their communities, that they are not franchised by African-Americans, this shift is really significant. And what McDonald's understands very quickly because of the success of their early black franchise owners is that in order to maintain this market share, they will have to do marketing that speaks to that community. They will have to promote the fact that they have black franchise owners and they begin to position themselves as not only one of the major brands that is willing to be in African-American communities, but Mm. one of the brands that allows African-Americans to become wealthy and to work um, and to climb up the ladder of, you know, um, of management um, and perhaps later on into franchise ownership. And so this is like really powerful. And I think because we're so saturated by fast food now, we forget how special it was in those early days. In 1968, McDonald's was not everywhere quite yet. It was pretty expansive, but it wasn't in all 50 states in the ways that we know it today. And for consumers who were very much left out of that experience of consumer citizenship, a McDonald's, like, you know, that's pretty exciting stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And when I was on the road with the book, the number of older African-Americans who told me that they remember the first time they went to McDonald's was really, really moving. And Mm. why it was so special was because it was different than um, the other types of places that they were used to patronizing because there was no, you know, discrimination or they found out there was an African-American owner. Mm. You know, it's so fascinating because um, for many people who who grew up after, let's say, you know, millennials today, right? Um, All this is not not evident. Those commercials are long gone. (laughs) And, uh, you know, these these uh, this whole era is is really fascinating for many people. Um, I want to talk to a lot more of these issues right after a quick little commercial break. And then we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Brooklyn Ball Factory, a Japanese eatery and coffee shop at 95 Montrose Avenue in East Williamsburg. Brooklyn Ball Factory uses the best ingredients to make Japanese comfort food, like their bento boxes featuring meatballs, grilled veggies, Japanese fried chicken, or pork shabu-shabu. Plus, visit Brooklyn Ball Factory's sister restaurants, Momo Sushi Shack, Samurai Papa, Samurai Mama, Bozu and Kitade Shokudo. Learn more at brooklynballfactory.com. Okay, we're back chatting with Dr. Marsha Chotlin. Her latest book is called Franchise and explores the relationship with Black communities and fast food. Um, so we were just talking a little bit about how older, you were mentioning how older um, African Americans had this sort of rosy view of, of McDonald's. Um, on your book tours. Um, 
Now that you mentioned, you know, book tours, what what kind of response have you gotten as a whole since you since you've been traveling around for this book? I'm curious. It has been amazing because mm-hmm. um, most, if not all, people have been to McDonald's. Um, mm-hmm. Rarely do I. I always go to an event. I say, does, "Is there anyone here who does not know what McDonald's is?" And everyone kind of laughs. Um, mm-hmm. So it's something that everyone has an experience of. But one of the things that I think people find compelling is that depending on your race and where you grew up, this part of the story is completely um, invisible to you. And the opportunity to kind of make those connections to something that is so um, ubiquitous, but um, is even more meaningful or has this kind of deeper layer is Mm -hmm. really, really exciting. And, you know, on the road, you meet people who have had careers with McDonald's. Um, I've been approached by people who were um, former McDonald's um, corporate executives who were part of the diversity initiatives that I write about. Um, People who fondly remember some of the black franchise owners I talk about. Um, You know, I've met a few people who talk about how their family got into fast food franchising. And in some cases it was an incredible success. And in others, Mm -hmm. it was incredibly hard on the family to try to maintain um, these restaurants because it's very grueling work for everyone involved. And then Mm -hmm. there are folks who, you know, they say that they appreciate having an opportunity to understand an experience of race and, um, you know, a frame of how different communities perceive the same thing. Because one of the things that I really wanted to highlight in this book is that just because we have a similar um, familiarity with something, it doesn't mean it means the same thing in all of our communities. Yeah, um, that's absolutely um, evident throughout this book. And I have to say that there's some some really kind of fun chapters that explore um, the ways that uh, fast food franchises have sought to to reach more black customers and, um, you know, and franchisees as as well. Um, For instance, in chapter five, um, where we're seeing, you know, all these new menu options that sort of catered to to folks. You write about a campaign that that dealt with soul. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh yikes! So some of this <laughs> stuff is really cringy, um, <laughs> and you know, if you have an afternoon available, I would recommend going to YouTube and watching some of these old commercials because, um, you know, on one hand, you can say it's pandering and it's slightly mm-hmm. problematic the ways that. Black consumers are rendered um, in these ads. Uh, it's very, um, what's the word? Um, a lot of slang, a lot of trying to be cool. Hmm. And while I take those criticisms seriously, I try to offer a different reading about, again, what does it mean for a Black consumer to feel like they see themselves represented in, right. in major advertising for a brand? And the fact that a lot of this was the work of African-American advertising um, you know, notable uh, Tom Burrell, as well as a market research firm called Viewpoint that really was trying to translate for these large corporations what it meant to try to be a presence in Black communities. And in some ways, it was really exciting and thoughtful. And in some other ways, it was kind of embarrassing. But I think the idea that there could be this incredible um, market of people with a lot of money to spend and a lot of desire to see themselves and these different strategies that later became the shorthand or the genre 
of yeah. how you do these advertising um, initiatives is pretty interesting to me. Um, sometimes they try to do it with food products. And so I talk about the early um, chicken sandwich and it had um, very modest impact on consumers initially, but they worked with the idea of the chicken sandwich um, to make it something really popular. And then there were these other ideas, there were onion nuggets that gave people gas and a McBeef steak sandwich <laughs> that's supposed to be like eating steak, but it wasn't. Um, but I think that the ways that corporations try to get to know people in mm-hmm. order to create more desires and trying to um, to meet those desires is something that I always find really, really interesting. Well, you raised the, the chicken sandwich, the fried chicken sandwich example. Uh, I feel like that's that's really prevalent. A lot of people are crazy about the, some of those Chick-fil-A sandwiches and the Popeye's chicken sandwiches. Um, but it sounds like the, the first, you know, fast food version, McDonald's in the mid 80s was sort of an analog to to something you write that it was something that it was enjoyed in the south you know for a very long time it was fried chicken sandwich between two slices of white bread so was that catered especially to the black community you think well it wasn't really um it's kind of it's kind of murky if this Mm -hmm. was something that was specifically done for this community but this is what i do know um when the test marketing of the chicken sandwich happened, they tried it out on African-American consumers. And it was really interesting to read how people in the late 70s and early 80s perceived fast food chicken. Um, uh-huh. You know, Kentucky Fried Chicken was making a huge um, impact in the fast food world and had been the leader in chicken. And McDonald's wanted to see if it should get into fried chicken, what should it do? So the concept was like a chicken hamburger almost. Mm-hmm. And initially, you know, African-American consumers were like, what is this thing? <laughs> There's mayonnaise on it instead of gravy. There's no bone. Um, it's kind of flat. It's a weird patty. And the conclusion was that you didn't have to necessarily tweak the recipe to make it more delicious. You simply had to convince people that this was something special that was made for them. And I think that's really, really powerful because in many ways, people don't, after a certain age, love the taste of fast food, but the kind of memories and the type of emotions that go that are surrounding it are also really compelling and so in some of the early market research they found that um african-american adults didn't particularly love mcdonald's but their kids liked it so they're willing to eat something there and they were trying to develop products that adults would enjoy while they took their children there and i think that again um you can capture a market by just explaining to them hey this is what this food is for you know, and proceed accordingly, and people will do it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, okay, so fast forward, you know, a few decades later, um, fast food is largely criticized for, for disproportionate, you know, health, adverse health effects of the Black community. Um, how do they respond, and how does that, you know, how do they respond to this in your research? Well, I mean, McDonald's really just kind of... Um, took a lot of criticism as we get into the 80s and 90s to the present um, on like several fronts. So um, with the release of Supersize Me, they get rid of supersized products. They incorporate more of the salads, the healthy options, fast food, um, the Happy Meal 
becomes available with carrots and apples and mm-hmm. milk, you know, so there's these different ways if you add substitutions. Um, I don't know how well those products actually sell in the stores. Mm-hmm. And because they aren't as shelf stable as some of the other ingredients, they also present a little bit of a financial risk for franchisees who now have to order a supply of this fresher um, food. But all of this is to say that, you know, as they are trying to mitigate some of these critiques with changing the menu and then sponsoring, you know, they always sponsored athletics and some will um, franchi- mm-hmm. franchisees sponsor health screenings, right? Like they try to say that McDonald's can be part of a healthy lifestyle. The other criticisms though remain, and this is about kind of saturation in certain communities, about workers' right. rights, about the quality of the product. All of this is happening as the fast casual movement is building steam. And so for a few dollars more, fast casual will give you the impression you're eating something healthier, even though I don't think you necessarily are. There are a lot of calories in burritos and you know fast casual meals. But the environment in which it's cooked and the menus um, that are supposed to attract a higher income consumer Mm -hmm. gives it the impression that it's healthier than it actually is, which I think is really interesting. Um, But what also is happening to McDonald's is that it is competing in a space that has more options and the move of grocery stores to have more prepared foods now also floods the market and food that you can get really, really fast. So I think McDonald's um, increasingly will be, will always be with us, but I think that it will be something that people pick up because they have very few options Mm -hmm. and something that people consume if they're, they're, they have um, the least amount of money to spend and that people who have a little bit more money will then start using um, restaurants that are priced a little bit higher or have a little bit more variety in their food. Mm-hmm. And on and on we continue, right? Exactly. <laughs> and, like and, a... and who knows what, who knows what their next step will be. McDonald's mm-hmm. has always been really, really smart about pivoting right. and about um, taking the temperature and we have no idea what they have in store for us. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and your book is, you know, more perhaps a bit more concerned with the economic promise that that fast food and franchising ownership um, may have helped uh, or may have um, held for the black community. Do you think that it was helpful in lifting more black, the, you know, the black Americans uh, economically um, throughout this time? Or do you think that the you know, the downsides of the health, you know, adverse health effects, the obesity epidemic. Um, how does that counter into your overall take on how successful this movement was? Well, one of the things that happens when people talk about the 1970s and these black capitalism initiatives that were supported by the White House, as well as civil rights organizations and celebrities, they often say it was a failure because they often look at projects that tried to bring manufacturing black um, manufacturing back to black neighborhoods, or they'll point to ideas like Soul City, North Carolina, which was supposed to be a sustainable all black town that had federal federal funding. So they'll say, okay, this black capitalism thing didn't work during this period. But what I would argue is that it worked so well that we couldn't even see its successes and it wasn't Mm. fast food franchising. That's where all the success happened. You did get um, 
opportunities for African Americans to own a business in a time where lending um, with banks was really hard because of discrimination, where it was really hard to start your own business. The consequences of that have created a mixed legacy. I would be dishonest if I didn't say that the presence of African-American franchise owners in black communities has been an all negative because a lot Mm -hmm. of these people have created incredible philanthropies. They've provided jobs for people who would have been shut out of job opportunities. They were able to advocate not only for more black franchise owners, but for more African-Americans to get white collar jobs within the McDonald's system. And it came at an incredibly high price. But at the end of the day, I don't believe that corporations are in any position to ever try to solve social ills. We actually have representative government to do that. We actually have Mm -hmm. taxes to do that. And so, you know, I love burgers and I love French fries. And I think going out to eat is a real joy and a real pleasure. And I want that um, opportunity to be available to all people. What I don't want is to live in a society that the profits that a burger restaurant makes um, fundamentally changes whether or not a historically black college can keep its door open. And I don't want it to have any impact on whether a school can have an after school program or if people um, have an opportunity to get a first job. Or I don't want a McDonald's to be the default senior center in a neighborhood because <laughs> there's nowhere else to go, right? Like, I right. don't want that to set the tone on how we live in our public lives or in civil society. And so, you know, this was a, this has been a very mixed legacy. And at mm-hmm. the same time, I don't fault anyone for believing in this promise because right. it really reflects the desperation and the hopes that people had during a, a time of a lot of instability and a lot of uncertainty. Well, I just love that you have brought these, this very complicated uh, relationship to light in, in the um, you know, retrospect of, of time. And we can look back at this and, you know, see this very, very, very complicated and, and bizarre, as you write, <laughs> legacy that it has left. So uh, what do you hope people take away from this book? I hope that in light of recent events, that people see this as a cautionary tale about giving up on a robust public system to solve problems mm-hmm. in communities that are hurting and vulnerable. I want people to be really discerning um, in the next few months as we say, you know, what needs to happen in Atlanta and Minneapolis and Chicago and Baltimore in these cities in which people have been victims of a great deal of racial injustice and have had to contend with you know, the impact of racial capitalism, I want their answers to say, we need more public resources, rather than to say, who's going to be the corporate underwriter of this moment. Wow, that is that is awesome. Well, it's been so enlightening listening to you, Marsha, and, um, and reading this book, I hope everyone gets a hand on uh, their hold on it. It's, um, you know, it's out from Liberate Press, um, in hardcover, and, uh, and, Folks can reach you at your at your website, right, Marsha? Actually, um, yes, absolutely. So, yeah, marshachatlin.com. I'm always on Twitter. Unfortunately, it's gotten even worse since shutdown. Um, I'm at <laughs> Dr. M. Chatlin and Instagram as well. And I would love to hear from people who are thoughtful about food. Thank you so much for your writing and your continued thoughts on this topic and and many more. So, I really look forward to reading your writing. And uh, yeah, I'll see you on Twitter. <laughs> Thank you so much, Marsha. And thank you, Jeet Suresh Paul, our engineer for today. 
and we'll see you next week on Eat Your Words. Eat Your Words is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.